Welcome, everyone. This is Mark Steiner, and you're listening to Soundbites here on The Mark Steiner Show. Every week on Soundbites, we look at our food, our world, and our future, from agriculture to the environment, in the Delmarva region and beyond. Broadcast right here out of your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, and heard on WSDL 90.7 FM, Delmarva Public Radio. A few weeks ago, I went to the New Partners for Smart Growth Conference that was held in downtown Baltimore. There I moderated a panel discussion about Baltimore's food system vision. Looking at Baltimore as a national model, I talked to a range of people working to shape and implement visions for sustainable local food in Baltimore. Holly Freistadt, the food policy director for the city of Baltimore, Ann Palmer, program director at the Johns Hopkins Center for a Livable Future, Willie Flowers, executive director of the Park Heights Community Health Alliance, and Walker Marsh, owner and founder of the Flower Factory. Now, what I want to do now is let each one of the people on this panel, introduce themselves very briefly about their work and who they are, then we'll jump right into it, okay? And let's start at the very end here with Walker Marsh. My name is Walker Marsh. I'm the owner of the Flower Factory. Flower Factory is an urban farm right here in Baltimore. It's on the east side, north of John Hopkins Hospital. We specialize in growing cut flowers and herbs. But more recently, I used to work at Real Food Farm, nonprofit farm funded by Civic Works. And I was working there as a production assistant. And then I became an off-site field manager over there. And then I moved up to owning my own farm. I've done a lot of work with uh, food justice here in Baltimore. I was on the advisory board for the Food Justice Forum that happened last year. And I'm a, a Baltimore native, so I, I understand uh, the food inequalities here in Baltimore. Ann Palmer. So my name is Ann Palmer, and I work at the Johns Hopkins Center for Livable Future. And I've been involved in food work in Baltimore since 2006 when I started this job. Started with some, a community food assessment in southwest Baltimore and that actually um, then spawned uh, a lot of the work that we've been doing with the city on developing a food policy task force, hiring a food policy director. Um, so we have a long history of taking advantage of a lot of opportunities and building relationships with people without having uh, necessarily a well-guided strategy. I'm here to talk about our work with Baltimore City. Holly Freistadt. So I'm one of the first uh, food policy directors in the nation. That was around five years ago. Since then, we have over 20. So we're really seeing a growing trend of having food policy positions in city government and seeing their effectiveness to really look at collaboration between city government, nonprofit research entities, to really look at research and how to move policy. Um, my position is actually housed in the Department of Planning in the Office of Sustainability. Um, when you look at these nationally, they could be from health departments to mayor's office to economic development. And there's a very strategic reason why I'm housed in the Office of Sustainability and Department of Planning as it influences urban ag and food access issues as well. Last but not least, Willie Flowers. Any miracle workers in the house? Everybody got to say yes. Um, so if you um, know anything about miracles, it has been a course in miracles doing this type of work, but we love it. But um, we frame our um, activities and programs by just focusing on solutions as enough to cry about, obviously. But in communities like the one I work in in Park Heights, um, we pull off uh, those solutions through what we do with uh, our community garden. It's called Athia Community Garden and um, Growing Food Together, CSA, which combines a CSA opportunity, but also what we call sweat equity. So the 
anybody in the community can participate by working. And we also have the Park Heights Community Farmers Market. And we culminate our efforts at the end of the year through what we call our Brassica Festival, which is simply a community conference on food and greens. I, I want to talk about first where Baltimore is, and then talk about where Baltimore could be and should be as kind of an example to the nation. Um, and so, Holly, let me start with you. So I'm going to put on the hat of the sustainability office for this question. Um, so Baltimore City, we actually have um, an urban ag plan. And in our sustainability plan as well, our goal is to increase the amount of land under production for growing food. I mean, that is one of our goals in the city. And I would say that we are moving forward with that uh, quite ambitiously, uh, from having an ag plan to just passing legislation for urban farms to be able to farm um, vacant land in the city, to having a leasing program for urban farms for five-year leases, um, to also other innovations of how to farm in the city and how do we create demand. Um, and one of the things that I would say is one of our surprise accomplishments, or I would say surprise because one small change in a memorandum of agreement has made a huge impact, meaning that Baltimore City um, is one of the first in the nation to have an, an incentive for city employees to participate in a CSA, meaning that as an employee, as a MAPS employee specifically right now, I get a $250 rebate for a CSA. And so last year was the first time that we've done this. And so we had 144 people in our first year CSA where we had a rebate. The farmer got the full amount of their $300 half share. And then we all just paid around $50 after the rebate. Um, and it truly has incentivized um, fruit and vegetables in the city. You know, it's just the first 144 people out of 15,000 employees, but it's a really good first year. Um, and we were seeing, I mean, walking down, you know, buildings and some of these buildings where you usually see other foods being purchased, we're seeing people having um, bags of produce walking down the hallways. Um, and the purpose of that is not only to increase health, but to create a demand for our urban farms. We want to grow farmers. If we're going to grow farmers, we have to grow demand. Um, so that's just one example. Another one, and I'm going to let, turn it over back to Mark, is around farmers markets. Um, bringing SNAP benefits, uh, formerly known as food stamps, into the farmers markets. Um, one of our innovations has really been jumping that digital divide one more time um, with SNAP benefits. Um, around three years ago, we jumped it and got um, SNAP benefits at the markets through a token-based system, but the market in Baltimore can see over 9,000 people on a given Sunday. Um, and so what has happened is that when we used tokens at the farmers market for SNAP and incentive dollars, the farmers market was acting like a bank. Um, that is not their mission and vision. Um, so this year we transitioned and we will continue to transition to every farmer having their own smartphone device that accepts SNAP benefits, debit, and double incentive dollars. Um, and so we are one of the first, you know, and it's a trickier process um, to cross this digital divide than the token-based system. Um, so those are just examples of how to really create a city that has a demand for local food um, and also the infrastructure of land as well. As you were speaking about things, I thought about what it would mean if you get, actually get the private sector 
to feed into that whole idea of subsidizing. Working on it. Yeah, I'm sure you are working <laughs> on it. I'm sure you are working on it. But that leads another piece, and, the, and Willie Flowers. One of the things is, I think, unique about what's happening in Baltimore, and I want to expand on this with all of you for a moment, and starting with Willie, because I really started with, with what you're doing in Park Heights, is that wherever I've been around the country, and all the people I've interviewed, the incredible people doing incredible work in Milwaukee and Chicago and across the country in urban farming, most of those farms are growing things to sell to restaurants and to the upscale residents of the communities. But what's unique about what's happening in Park Heights that Willie was, I want Willie to talk about here is that this is a program that is feeding working people, poor working people, changes the nature of what urban farming can mean. Willie's breaking down that wall. It may not be unique, but what we call our um, sweat equity CSA involves just, you know, doing the c- consistent organizing to bring the community in. Um, and what I mean by that is that uh, it's one thing to have a garden. It's one thing to articulate the benefit of food and also the consumer side of participating with a CSA. But that means nothing if you can't bring the people in. And it means absolutely nothing at all if you bring in people outside of the community to benefit from it. And I didn't want that burden on my heart. So <laughs> we, um, we incentivize residents who may not capture or uh, adapt to what is called the CSA, Community Supported Agriculture, and just let them know that, you know, you can learn how to, number one, you can learn how to farm, you can learn how to garden, and also you can take food home. And you can't beat that. Um, it's one of the brightest parts of my day to grab greens and take them home and cook them that night. So we're um, hoping to uh, continue to do that. And like I said, it's, it's no charge to them. Um, they walk away learning to garden in, in, in theory in some cases. But they also uh, become part of a community that um, focuses specifically on um, growing food. And this to me is, a, is, is part of the crux between the city work and opening up land and what communities can do taking this Park Heights model. And I was thinking about this in terms of Walker Marsh, what you created and where you came out of. There's another family that's not here tonight, but that Willie introduced me to, uh, the Blues, that have this incredible farm, an older African-American couple, not that old, about my age. I guess I'm old. But that, <laughs> that, that, um, that are creating this incredible organic farm that continues to feed people all through the winter with greens and more. And one of the ideas is, is how you begin to train and think about young people moving into this arena of farming, young people of color in our communities. You know, I think about that a lot, honestly. And I feel like a lot of the models and everything that we do with the farmers markets and everything with CSAs, like it's cool, but I think it's outdated, honestly. Like my generation, we can't connect with that stuff. Like we don't go to farmers markets. Like, I'm not getting up early to go to the farm market on a Saturday. Like, I'm not doing that. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just, it's outdated, honestly. And I think that we need to think of new ideas, innovative ideas to get this stuff to the people. And one big part of it, to me, is, is education. People don't understand why they should eat organic food or they just don't understand why they should go outside and, and plant these plants. Like, it, it's... A lot of it has to do with education, and it, it just we just need new ideas. Like, I, I really feel like we need new ideas that bring attention to it, you know, and, and, and that's one thing that I'm trying to do is really bring attention to it. I want people to see what we're doing because I, I walk around Baltimore. I ride the bus, you know, I ride the subway, and I talk to people, and people don't know about these farms, and that's a problem. Like, people should know about this stuff. I think we got to come at it in a different, in a different like, light. And one of the things you, I think, bring to the table here, among many things, is um, 
is kind of an overview of where we are in Baltimore because the Center for Earthable Future has been working with people in communities across, across this city and beyond to kind of um, uh, bring them together and figure out how, what the next steps are. Give us an overview. So in all modesty, I do think that we have really come a long way in Baltimore. And when we sat in the room and we were developing our green goals for the sustainability plan, which was released in 2008, we were like, we want to be a leader of, you know, urban, local, sustainable foods. We had this, like, very lofty goal. And, you know, I had people, I had worked with people that had been in Baltimore far longer than I had and had done a lot of community organizing. And they described it to me as, this is a city where good ideas go to die. And I was just like, what? Yeah. We do have the reputation, by the way. We do. And it was really, like, so for me, I thought, this is a really good idea, and we cannot let this happen. And it, um, it, that was, you know, kind of stunning. So when I look back now and I think of what we said and where we are, I'm just blown away at what has happened in the last seven years. It's just incredible. And it is. I mean, I never met Walker before, and it was, you know, and I met Willie years ago. There's so much going on, we can't even keep up with all of it. So it's incredible to hear these stories, and I do think um, where we are is in a place of where a lot of cities that are post-industrial and are trying to reconfigure, what are they going to do with all this land? What are we going to do? We want to attract people to the city, but we still have issues of people leaving the city. How do we get people to want to move in here? Um, what can we offer them? You know, How can we create a place and a community that people want to be part of and actually move here for that purpose? And we have heard stories of people moving to Baltimore because of our incredible food and local ag scene. So that, to me, is just amazing. And I am, you know, just thrilled to be with these guys and just hear about their work because we're older, you know, and it is really important to remind ourselves of what, how different it is when you are in your 20s and 30s and what the new generation is going to be bringing for this and how much more opportunity they see um, that we don't even see because we're not even plugged into the same work. One of the things you just said, can't, can't keep up with all the things that are going on, is what you just said. So I'm curious how you think that gets developed, how we not just keep up with it, but how we kind of build an entire system in Baltimore without that system becoming part of a, with all due respect, Holly, because you understand what I mean here, without becoming part of a bureaucratic maze uh, where you can't get land, where you're told what you can grow, what you can't grow, how you can grow it, uh, you know, who you give it to, who you sell it to. I mean, how do we build that system? I'm, I am surprised to say I agree with Ann. Baltimore, in some ways, is at the head of the curve of, in terms of doing this across the city. So how do we get there? How do you think that happens? I think that it's an exciting opportunity. Um, every time we see some new uh, revitalization, um, what has traditionally happened is that you, you begin to create maybe an anchor that's going to stimulate new business, new homes, and all that, and you leave out the, the people. And, you know, it's always criticized as being gentrification. Now, what doesn't happen on the front end is a, a plan specifically to maintain the people who live there and show the benefit of having new individuals in a new community to them. So the negative piece of that viewpoint is that, you know, you're moving people out 10 years, the people who were there are gone. Now, that's a negative aspect of uh, revitalization. Uh, so, you know, whatever you call it. Now, the positive piece is to be deliberate about 
balancing out interest on the front end, and that includes this food thing. So it has to be a, a concerted effort between the communities involved and also the uh, city planning office so that everybody's interests can be balanced. Unfortunately, that doesn't happen. Uh, I don't think it has happened in, in, in a lot of urban areas, particularly in the mid-Atlantic uh, region, um, but it should. Um, there's a, you know, a racial uh, component of it that is always neglected, and there's an economic component of it that's neglected. But when we start talking about food, we can apply all these solutions at the same time and on the front end, and it should be um, the developers' um, community organizing, which they don't traditionally do, um, to have the community con concerned about their long-term um, benefits of having a new development project. And that doesn't happen now, but that's uh, what I see as a solution. That could be part of the solution. Holly, I'm, I mean, I know that we, we've, come, we, you, we've come to a point in Baltimore that, it, as we just said a moment ago, there's pretty, pretty strong moving in the right direction. But it's often difficult to kind of loosen up the land um, so people can actually farm and turn it into parks, what they want to do with, that, with the land, with this vacant land and boarded up buildings that we have in this community. So where do you think, playing off what Willie said, is other, other steps? I mean, how do you really kind of pull this together? What's the role of the city government in making that happen without actually getting, again, with all due respect, without getting in the way of it? So I would say there's two key areas, policy and collaboration. Um, in the policy, I think we have already set the policy in place. Um, the policy is there, you know, a few years ago we changed the building code, which sounds like, you know, so what? But by changing our building code, we went from one illegal hoop house to over 50-plus hoop houses in the city now, meaning we can grow uh, year-round, meaning farmers can actually grow, um, hopefully more profitably than they were before. Um, and so the policy changes, you know, by having an urban ag tax credit for urban farmers, having these policies of land, uh, land leasing, those are all in place. Now the next part, and having a policy on how to access water. Um, I think that we're in the right place with policy, but now it's that implementation of do we have enough farmers who want to farm? Do we have enough people who want to go through? It's still bureaucracy. You still need to get a land leasing agreement with the city. And is it enough land? Um, you know, we're looking at one-acre plots. Well, we know growing in the city, you know, growing off of even one acre to three acres is still very difficult. Now, I would say that's great. You know, Boston, other cities have these great urban ag programs on 0.3 acres. Um, so it is more land than other, you know, densely populated cities. Um, but I think really the next part is looking at that collaboration. You know, do people know about the policies that are in place and how to access the land? Do they have the training to farm? Um, you know, is there a mechanism in place to go from growing in your backyard to actually growing food for a profit um, and selling it, whether it's to a restaurant, a farmer's market, or to other channels? Um, and so I think that one of the things, of, in order to be successful, it's really looking at how we collaborate. Uh, we have our Food Policy Advisory Committee, which is our equivalent to our Food Policy Council, without the politics is the best way of saying it. It's not a city entity, per se. It's more of a collaboration. The Food Policy Council, you mean? No, so we have the Food Policy Advisory Committee. Right, got you. Right, 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 right. Um, and so it's not sanctioned. Um, it is not closed to X number of people. Um, and it really doesn't have sort of that political um, tensions that some councils do have. Um, it's much more about getting the work done and knowing who's doing it and how to, how to continue to move forward. And I was just thinking about how you, these things get organized. And, I, and you mentioned the food, food Advisory Council. And there are food policy councils that are popping up all over. I mean, Prince George's County, which is here in Maryland. How many people from Prince George's County? Is from anybody here from PG? 
There you go. All right. Um, they have what's becoming a very active food policy council. Um, and, all the, and so this, this possibility, these food policy councils actually could play an incredibly important role in kind of designing and helping design what a system could be in a community like this. I think that um, what you see happening is these are really stakeholder groups. So sometimes they take the model of a council. Sometimes they're more of a coalition, maybe more single-issue focused. But the idea is that you have a variety of stakeholders in the room who all bring to bear a certain area of expertise and using your best minds try to come up with solutions and, you know, what are the barriers? What's going on that's preventing things from happening? Um, What sort of opportunities are out there? We did a task force involved. Baltimore, which was a year-long group, and then it morphed into this advisory committee eventually. But I think the goal of that entirely was to really learn from each other and walking into the room understanding that there's a, it's a very complicated issue. The food system is not simple to understand. And if we try to dismiss it as though it's simple or has a simple solution, we sort of lose out on that bigger perspective. For example, I do want to just frame this up. So in my opinion, urban ag is not intended to be a, a way to feed cities. Urban ag is for educational purposes. Urban ag is to create income generation and job training and things like that for people who wouldn't otherwise have access to that. Cities are full of a lot of people, and there is no way urban ag is going to play that role. Our Perry urban ag can contribute to it, our larger statewide ag, but we have to look at what is needed in order to feed the many people that live in this area. And that's a you know, very difficult equation to come up with. And then how do we start to think of our food system that way? So we don't want to be really focused on just what's happening in the urban area. We really need to have an, a, you know, an expansive view, which means looking at you know, all over the, the region, in fact. So that, that's just like one example, I think, of where I see councils and groups really working to try to better understand how is food moving throughout the system from a distribution perspective, production perspective, et cetera. Go ahead, Walker. I, I feel like I can speak directly to that because um, I'm a product of basically uh, taking a resident of Baltimore and turning him into this urban ag person that cares about the environment and everything because before this, I you know, I didn't know anything about it. I'm just, you know, a regular guy, went to college, failed out of college, you know, been working and stumbled upon uh, farming. And it's because of programs like the Growing Green Competition that I recently won. Uh, and the Growing Green Competition, if you don't know, is a initiative that the Baltimore, well, that Baltimore City put on to turn vacant lots into green spaces. So um, with me working at Civic, I mean, working at Real Food Farms, uh, I was able to enter in this competition, and that's why I'm able to have my own farm right now. But um, I feel like what I'm trying to create is kind of like a model for, you know, a person to go through and to go up and get their own farm because I started at the, as a production assistant at Real Food Farm, like I said earlier, and uh, I worked my way up, and I just had interest in it, and I really fell in love with it. And I, if, if it wasn't because of the city, like, I wouldn't be owning this farm. I don't have money to start a farm, you know, and I don't have the, the skills to go to a bank and say, hey, can you give me, you know, 
$60,000 to start a farm. I'm like, no, what's wrong with you? <laughs> like, you know, it's, I, I, I really feel like, you know, we need to continue programs like this because, you know, I, I currently work at, uh, I am a city employee right now. I work at the Silburn Arboretum in their greenhouses in the horticulture uh, department, and I'm developing my skills every day. Uh, like I said, I'm growing flowers. So at Real Food Farm, we grew vegetables. So this is going to be a big transition for me. So, but I was able to get in contact with people that could put me in the position where I could learn how to do these things. And I think we need to continue programs like this and, and set like a, a model so that, you know, if there are young kids that are interested and there are kids out here that are interested from my experience of working at Roku Farm, it's, it's, there are a lot of kids that are interested in it. It's just having that vehicle to allow them to get to where they want to be. I think that, that what we're talking about here is something, at least in my mind, is fairly revolutionary in changing the notion of what cities can do. They can't feed everybody in the city, but they can feed some people in the city, and they can get people educated about where food comes from and why it's important to eat a certain way and get their hands in the dirt and changing the nature of the community. And as Willie was talking about, I think it's really important, as I go back here to get to the audience, Willie, is, is, is the sense of, a sense of community that begins to be created in a community like Park Heights and any other working, poor working class neighborhood of color in the city or the country where people become dislocated because of the nature of the society right now and the role this plays in that. I'm going to go out to the audience and get some folks as you're talking about that. I concur. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's just an unfortunate situation when there is uh, no appreciation for the type of neglect, urban neglect that exists in a community like Park Heights. And the excitement of it, its revival doesn't come until uh, either the city or a developer decides we can do something differently. And unfortunately, the damage has been done. So when there's an investment, like I said, the boats rise, but unfortunately, the individuals or residents who have been there are often uh, left out. So uh, just as deliberate, I, I'm, I'm kind of stuck on um, the deliberate nature of developers and also the city moving forward. They should have the ambition to unite before they construct. And not to say that that should halt things, but it is a case, again, that the construction happens and there's no um, unity theme. And um, there should be combined interest between um, the investors and also residents and um, people who are uh, excited about a new home, homestead, a new um, community garden, and that kind of thing. So that, I think, would bring the community that we need. And Holly, what, to me, what he's describing, I know you can't answer for the city on this, but what you're describing is a different way for cities to think about development rather than the same way we think about it all the time, which is subsidizing a lot of wealthy developers but what does the community get back in return? And this way, we're talking about a way that develops, that includes the people that live here already and develops a different sense and a different way of doing things than we've done before. I think that's, that's a big piece of this. It can't be done, as much as we want it to be done separate, it can't be done in isolation to the rest. So I do want to make a quick comment. I feel like one of my roles um, in city government is to help agencies, to help the city think about food. 
you know, many of these agencies, you know, I was looking at an analysis of presentation a couple months ago. We work with 18 different agencies in the city, and many of them, if we asked them five years ago, they would say, we don't do anything with food. But they all do. And so part of the work is to make sure that food is part of their mindset, that, you know, a developer may not have thought about, well, they're taking away land that could potentially be for food. Or it could be that a city agency, you know, is working on a plan for X, but never thought that what's the impact on food. So I feel like one of the things I'm really trying to do is make sure that there is an awareness of how is food impacted, you know, the potential or the current status of food, from food access to growing of food. Go ahead, Willie. And like I said, I just uh, I guess want to focus on the trends that happen. And I give you an example of um, what has happened in the Park Heights community over the last, I say, 10 years. Um, well, beyond that, but really this was like a sign that, you know, things have gotten to an all-time um, low. And at some point in the uh, early 2000s, um, there was a decision to eliminate the library from the neighborhood. Um, so... Um, there was no substantial fight. Um, time went on. The library disappeared. And just this past year, um, the one grocery store was there. They left as well. So when these trends happen, it's speaking to some level of neglect. And on each occasion, it, uh, the criticism was that the community didn't participate um, at the library. And, of course, um, the business decision around uh, um, a grocery store chain deciding to leave has based on economics. So I am convinced that if there was an aggressive uh, effort by the library to, to be more aggressive at, uh, you know, community organizing in that, in that um, situation, that the library would have been full. In addition to that, if there was some incentive for the grocery store chain to have um, people on the street, that would also. Because what does exist is, um, and they do a lot of aggressive advertising, are corner stores that send people out each day and drop um, their advertisements on doors. And they're out there with us when we're, we're, we're doing activities, and we're the only ones out there in the cold. But my point is, if that type of uh, piece is added, we would get different results on turnout. We're talking about Baltimore's food system vision in this segment, recorded at the 2015 New Partners for Smart Growth Conference in downtown Baltimore. There's more of this conversation on Soundbites on The Mark Steiner Show when we return from this short break. The Mark Steiner Show is brought to you by MeQ, Baltimore's credit union. Offering a full range of financial services, MeQ, Baltimore's credit union, is helping its members and its community prosper. When you invest in yourself, MeQ invests in you. For more information www.mecu.com Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner and you're listening to Soundbites here on the Mark Steiner Show broadcast out of your source for cool jazz and more. WEAA 88.9 FM The Voice of the Community and heard on WSDL 90.7 FM Delmarva Public Radio. This hour we're listening to a conversation about Baltimore's food system vision, featuring people who are working to shape and implement visions for sustainable food here in Baltimore. This conversation took place a few weeks ago at the New Partners for Smart Growth Conference held in downtown Baltimore. I was joined by Holly Freistadt, the Food Policy Director for the City of Baltimore, Ann Palmer, Program Director at the Johns Hopkins Center for a Livable Future, Willie Flowers, Executive Director of the Park Heights Community Health Alliance, and Walker Marsh, owner and founder of The Flower Factory. My name is Gloria Fisher, and I'm from Kansas City, Missouri. 
and we're the home of 13,000 vacant lots. <laughs> so um, I was my question's for Holly, and it's around the land lease. So what kind of requirements, or can you speak to some of the, just the maybe the three highlights of what the lease, the land lease talks to? Or Good question. The goal around land leasing is specifically for farmers. So I have to differentiate that from, say, community gardens. So it is for a farmer who's intending or trying to grow food, whether it's full-time or as close to full-time as they can. They need to already have experience growing food. So it cannot be a first-time farmer. There's other mechanisms to start growing. This is for someone who's already a few years out, who has a business plan, who really's intention is to farm in the city. Um, and so some of the requirements is a business plan, ex- previous experience farming. And if you don't, and so we do a request for um, qualifications or proposals every couple of years. Um, and what we actually do is matchmaking. You know, a few years ago we got um, one entity who really had this great mission and vision of growing food, but they never grew food. So we connected with another farm. Um, so that was actually Strength of Love 2, um, which we're going to be seeing on the tour tomorrow with Big City Farms. We partnered those two together, and then they did a land leasing. So tomorrow on the tour, we're going to see examples and talk to actually two or three of the farmers who have land leasing initiatives with the city. Um, So ask those questions of how it's working for them. It's definitely not perfect, but at least we have the mechanism in place um, to make it allowable. Um, Good morning. Celeste James with Kaiser Permanente. And um, this question is for Holly and perhaps Anne might want to weigh in. Um, Holly, you mentioned that you were the first of um, first food policy director in this area and that there are now many more. I'm wondering if you can provide some advice to those who are now starting and up and coming. D.C. just passed legislation to, um, to hire a, a, a food czar. Prince George's County, as we just heard, um, also has a relatively new council. What are your lessons of advice about what to do and what not to do to be effective? So it's been quite amazing because there there's 20 of us, and we're all convened several times a year and have monthly meetings uh, through United States Conference of the Mayors. Um, and one of the things that I've been so surprised about is that each of us from our own cities are gathering together, and we're all doing the same work whether we knew it or not. Um, and it's like we all are working on some of the same core food system issues because the food system doesn't really change. You know, there's always going to be growing food. There's always distribution of food. There's always policy. Um, And so one of the things I would say as far as recommendations is the content is actually probably the easy part. We all know kind of the core key issues we need to be working on, and whether we are working together or not nationally, we still come up to the same issues. Um, But the recommendation is really looking at how the collaboration works. Um, I would say that in Baltimore, our successes were the, was the collaboration. And I say it over and over again, if we didn't have Johns Hopkins doing the research um, prior to us creating policy or developing out strategies, we wouldn't be able to do what we're doing. If we didn't have nonprofits who are nimble and able to move quickly on a food access need that has to happen immediately, then we wouldn't be able to um, accomplish what we accomplish. So it's all about the, the ability to collaborate effectively um, with many different partners. Um, and there is also really now a support system for food policy advisors or directors. They come go by different names and in different agencies. Um, and there's really a mayor's support. Um, a lot, most of the work, I would say all the work that I do here in the city is because Mayor Rawlings Blake um, is committed to the issues. And we're seeing this nationally. We have a um, United States Conference of the Mayor's Food Policy Task Force that was um, created two years ago. 
And so we have, that is why we have a growing change in movement of food policy directors in the nation. It's because mayors see that it's effective in their city government to help agencies realize where food intersects their work. And uh, since you were called out in a sense, I want you to pick up on that. So I guess the only thing I would add is that there are, Holly, you know, Holly's describing one model, which I think has been really successful in, in areas, in cities, and any jurisdiction that has political support, it's going to be successful. I think the struggle is in areas where you don't have that political support, or maybe then there's an election and then you, what support you had goes away. So I think you're, we see a lot of different models, which sometimes are, you know, they're all, though, I say the common theme is that I do not know of a food policy council that does not have a relationship with their government in some capacity. Be it there's a member of government that sits on the council or even a much more close relationship where there's actually an executive order, but it could be part of a nonprofit. So there's a lot of different um, hybrids out there of what's happening, and I think it really is very place-based and has to be decided upon depending on what the circumstances are. And so what we see, you know, when we see – 200, over 200 food policy councils in the United States. Those are at all different levels, um, state, municipal, sometimes regional. They'll, and those take very different forms depending upon where they are located, who's involved, who started it. Was a community group? Was it started in government? Um, and there's a lot more on our website. I'll just do a little commercial break. So if you want foodpolicynetworks.org, you can go online and look and see a lot of what's happening in states around the country and also lots of different resources about how these are getting started. Um, My name is Jennifer White. Uh, Certainly glad to hear from all of you today. Um, Had a question for Brother Flowers um, in relationship with the, uh, to to the work in which that you're doing in the Park Heights community. Just wanted to know, in light of the the picture that you painted as far as the, the work that's being done to, you know, revitalize and tying all this to food, but also the uh, the, the other negative things that are happening, uh, over time. So in, in light of that history, has that collective power, um, you know, been used towards any advocacy or any systemic change in light of the history that you paint? Um, you know, what has that done for the people, um, you know, seeing that and have, you know, has the Park Heights community among other communities in Baltimore have used their collective power to speak truth to power about power? I will say that while it's my our passion and commitment to spread it with everybody, it's a challenge because of the bandwidth. And um, we do uh, we do a lot of work and we cover a lot of ground. I mean, we um, we did our uh, research this past year on our activities throughout the year, and we um, we touched like three thousand uh, thirteen thousand people, and that's a lot of folks, right? But um, it's still the case that you still have the the general health outcomes that we have. And um, so that means that we're not touching a a lot of people. So it it breaks my heart when I go home and, um, you know, there's something that we could have done. But, you know, the day doesn't last all day and we don't have a large staff. So I will say that there's not an overwhelming community self-determination spirit about food in general. But um, but the way we counter that is just to continue to do the work. Um, despite everything that we're saying here, uh, and, and I think it's coming out in this conversation, everyone plays a role. Everybody just has to do their role. I mean, we try to produce as much food as possible. Um, we're hoping to expand this year to uh, another half acre, and we have other sites that we have targeted, and that's really all we can do. And we're not doing it without the... Um, 
the hope that we can inspire communities toward it. But um, we consistently um, see evidence that if it's not the case that they want to be a part of it, they know that we're there. So when they come in a time of, of need that we can deliver something. So it's it's complicated, and I wish it could be like, uh, you know, the Edmund Pettus, Pettus Bridge, but it's really not. Um, and um, But, you know, I, we continue to try to uh, fight to make it that way. Walker, as the youngest member of the panel, I'll just pick up on what Willie said, just thinking about your own sense of what you came out of and pick up on where you think it might go, where it could go. I mean, I can see it going in a lot of different ways. Um, like, I don't know if, if Holly or Ann mentioned it, but the, the government or the local government has this backing of nonprofit farms. I will be an example of a for-profit farm, and I think that we need a couple, we need more examples of for-profit uh, urban farms in the city because that's one of the key issues that people my age face when it's going to moving into this urban agriculture field is there's no money to be made from it. And I'm not saying that I'm gonna make a million dollars off of my farm, but I will, I will be able to get to the point where I can sustain my lifestyle from this farm. And that's only gonna be achievable through for-profits. I, I, I love nonprofits. I, I worked at a nonprofit for, for four years. I mean, it's great, it's a great experience. I think most of you people in here have experience with nonprofits, but it's not really, it it's ain't going to pay you that much money, basically. Speaking, speaking as an executive director of a nonprofit, I think what's, nobody. what's really missing in anybody. the conversation okay. that he's having is that there's no difference, you know, except for your filing, there's no difference between a nonprofit and a for-profit. It's still about production. It's still about, and, and when you're talking about the business side of all of this, if you ain't balancing your books, you're not going to be producing anything. So um, I don't want to, I don't want... Um, someone to be confused about the difference. <laughs> the, the, and but, I, um, like, and I, I said that I, I know for a fact, for a fact, that I am not going to become a millionaire from this venture. And I, I understand that completely. But, you know, it's, yeah, it's about making a living and sustaining my lifestyle. But, it's, but it seems to me that what the two of you just said is that it is a, for things to change in a city, there has to be a synergy between the two. That's the synergy between people of your generation, young people who want to jump into farming as a way of life in an urban community, and the idea of farming cooperatives in working-class communities like Park Heights that actually educate, change things, feed people, and create a different model for CSAs and other things that's not based on the stuff that only feeds the wealthier communities. That, 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 to me, they're not mutually exclusive. So I have a quick comment here. Two, want two things. One is when we started this land leasing initiative, we actually wanted it just to be for-profit farms. Um, and this has been this is a conversation that all cities are having: is can cities and will cities create profitable urban farms? Can they do it? Can it happen? And that's what we really want to happen. What we've noticed along the way, we must have nonprofit farms at a smaller ratio, but they are the ones who grow the farmers who then are then growing the food for profit. Um, and that is kind of an incubator place. And that is really what we want to see from you growing out a real food farm. You now have created your own business. And so I think that there is going to always be this tension between nonprofit farms and like with the CSA model that we have in the city, one of the very first questions was, it should only be for profit farms. 
And I said, that would be great. Um, but what if, there's a, what if we don't have any urban farms who can do it? What if we don't have enough demand? So the Farm Alliance is really important and it hasn't been mentioned yet. It's a coalition of farmers. Um, what is it, 12 farmers now? Yeah, I think Are you so. a member of the Farm yeah, Alliance? Yeah, I'm in the process okay. of getting so in I'll there. I'll punt that back to you. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm going to be in the Farm Alliance. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me, let me um, I guess, uh, go at this from a different way. Um, because I don't, I don't see a tension um, between the conversation. I just think that there should be an understanding of the process. And, and she's right. Um, it, it, it will be far easier, and he mentioned it earlier, for a nonprofit entity to get a grant to establish whatever infrastructure you need for farming. So to dismiss it is, you know, it's just um, not good judgment. To, to, to dismiss that reality is not good judgment. It would be easier to get the grant than to get uh, a loan, you know. So I think that there's um, value in that process. And if one, someone wants to pick up and, you know, start off by uh, having a $20,000 loan, um, they can do it. But if there's another avenue to do it, we need to discuss that in an open forum so that everybody can benefit from the energy that's happening um, with a local food movement. And that's all I'm saying. So I, I don't want to dismiss anyone's uh, effort to participate and to grow their vision about delivering quality food. But I don't want confusion based on uh, misunderstandings about how the process can benefit everyone. But what, this, this is a really important point. I think this is one of the most critical points we've reached in this conversation. And so because it's, it's a point that cities debate, uh, are in the flux of debating across America. Who is the city for? And why is this, who's the city being built for? You need businesses, for-profit farms. I think that's incredibly important, and this has to come up. And more people of color, young people of color, have to run those businesses and own those businesses to get some of the wealth back that was stolen for the last 500 years. That's part of the crisis that has to have taken place. The other part is what Willie is talking about, I think, which is that we live in a world where people who live in the poorest communities in America do not get the right food or have enough food to eat that's, that, that they need. And the only way that's going to happen is not private farms. The only way that's going to happen is cooperatives like Willie is growing that actually feed people and educate people and change the nature of the community. I mean, that's, they're not exclusive, but what happens is we always, in, the, in communities, because of where we're structured, we go towards the private business, which is important, but we leave out the rest of the people who live in the community. That's what can't happen. That, that's where we can have a chance to build a different kind of model for the future of Baltimore and maybe other urban areas. I, I just, and, and to, the, to, the, to the conversation about uh, who's the city being built for, I think that cities at any time were built for whoever could survive. And that's what the beauty of cities are. They're not, you know, mono, monolithic. They're not, uh, should never be one ethnicity. And so I just think that, again, it's, uh, you know, semi your tired, your poor, huddle messes, and these people are hungry, but they're also sick. So whatever we can do to maximize uh, the fact that you have, uh, you know, acres and acres of, of land that's not being used for anything except growing weeds, you know, our feeling is that if you can grow weeds there, you can grow tomatoes there. And if you can grow tomatoes, you can grow okra and everything else. And that can become the business. And that should be the mentality going into it. Sure. Uh, Simran Noor, um, thank you. I think this last discussion, I just wanted to make a quick comment. I think 
uh, what you said was absolutely right. Um, we need a. I think the, the challenge that we're up against is much larger than any one sector can solve, right? So it's finding the mix of market-based strategies and, uh, and government strategies and thinking about reform and transformation as a continuum and how we actually get to a society that works for everyone is, right, being able to think about these things in conjunction. And I just wanted to say, I think, absolutely to your point um, that... Uh, that Willie made about um, loans, um, you know, we know the barriers for particularly entrepreneurs of color are much, much more, uh, are much more present. Um, so race is still the number one indicator of loan quality in our country. And that's, there's a policy history behind that, right? So just to say, I think, um, you know, framing out the conversation and thinking about kind of how we got to the challenges that we have today and then thinking about a balanced set of approaches that are market-based, that are community-based, that are government-based to kind of get to those solutions. Anne, why don't you jump in that one? Every, you know, I always laugh when people say, what's the best thing that we could do? What's the most important thing? Everybody can do something, right? There is a role for everyone in this work. And so there's a role for private and nonprofit and for-profit. And so for us to, I mean, I, we all feel very beholden to our own sector and to our own work. But I think the beauty of this work is that it really does require a lot of collaboration and a lot of uh, building on what's already there and a lot of innovation and people really thinking, you know, differently about the way they do their work. So there's room for everyone and we should stop thinking that it has to be a singular solution or that's going to solve this problem or it's only going to be this because it really is, I think, going to be everything. Everything has to be brought to bear. Michael Ryan with the Institute for Public Health Innovation. Congratulations on your great work in Baltimore. I'm wondering what, what should our uh, state-level policy priorities be to support the great work that's happening in Baltimore and, and throughout the rest of the state? Let me start with Holly. I'll, I'll, go, I'll take that one. Um, so going back to something that Willie said around grocery stores, we have food deserts in Baltimore. It's not unique to many big cities, and we have a lot of food access issues. Um, and one of the things that we don't always pay attention or know enough about is we know many reasons why grocery stores may leave an area. It, you can say it's depopulation. You can say that it's economics. But what people don't think about is policy. Um, and sorry, I'm playing my policy hat today because that's my role. Um, but one of the reasons why grocery stores are leaving Baltimore City and other places or not coming in is around SNAP. In the state of Maryland, SNAP is issued for 11 days, 10 days, excuse me, meaning that grocery stores are busy for 14 days. And then for 14 days, they are really not busy at all, and they just get small cash purchases. It's very, very hard for a supermarket to do business um, when they're only busy for two weeks. That's why they have a lot of part-time staff. Um, that is why there's employment issues. 70% of many grocery stores are part-time. So by the state changing... The issue, the number of days that SNAP is issued, and there's around 10 states around the country who have 20 days issued. Um, by changing it to 20 days, it makes it easier for grocery stores. This is really about retail and economics. It's not as much about food access as far as it doesn't change um, the consumer's experience that much. That's really interesting. And we have yep. a Republican governor who knows what could happen. Um, well, thank you, everyone, for an excellent panel. And, Mark, um, I was sitting here, and I had this little dream. My name is Lindsay, and I live in Washington, D.C. I hope you will call Kojo Namdi and do, like, some sort of D.C. Baltimore discussion. Yes. So I'm just going to put that out there. Um, 
Uh, so we have a real opportunity. Celeste um, alluded to this. There's so much energy and interest right now in D.C. around food policy. I so appreciated the themes I heard about neighborhood transformation, though, in Baltimore. And so my question, well, I have two questions um, for anybody on the panel, is one, why is it an urgent priority for our new mayor to appoint the food policy director and put the council into place? And two, who would you include on the council so that the, the housing piece, the neighborhood stability piece, how, how, who would you include? What, what might you do different? Um, and just thinking about the real estate market that we're in in D.C., which I think is um, a little bit different than Baltimore and sort of some of the pressures we're having around that. Does that make any sense? Makes a lot of sense. You definitely need grassroots people at the table, without a doubt, people who are doing the work. Um, you do need uh, a, a focus and a mentality around health and the outcomes that are negative. And you might need an ER doctor who can tell the story about what happens every Friday night when people um, just come in and they should not be in the ER at all, but they have a lifelong or a family history of just preventable disease based on food. And you might want to get the uh, local undertaker, and he can really define the fact of the numbers of um, the deaths that come from something that could have been re uh, uh, avoided. And that might not happen in your scenario, but a, a deep concern about the uh, overall negative outcomes of not having quality food should be considered. Also, one thing that we have seen with D.C. is that the new mayor has already reached out to Mayor Rawlings Blake and to USCM, and there is now sort of a mentorship of mayors. Last week, the United States Conference of the Mayors met with the Food Policy Task Force, and many of the mayors were there to learn from each other and to look at strategies of what is working and what is not working. Um, I will say with, without a shadow of a doubt, I will be the new face of urban agriculture, and I'm going to push to continue to innovate and to change in this field and to affect positive change in the black community and just for, for humankind. So my challenge to all of you is to hold me to those standards. My lesson from all of this when I started eight and a half years ago was that um, you can do anything if you build the right relationships. And that, that relationship building that happens within the city and with any jurisdiction is so important because that is what will sustain you and will keep people wanting to be involved and interested. And everybody wants to be part of something that's successful. So if you're successful, you're going to attract the right people because they will want to be part of it. That was our sound bites for this week on The Mark Steiner Show. As always, share your thoughts on today's broadcast with me, at talkatsteinershow.org or tweet me at Mark Steiner. And a thank you to all of today's guests who join me at the new Partners for Smart Growth Conference to talk about Baltimore's food system vision. Holly Freistadt and Palmer will do flowers and Walker Marsh. The Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites are a production of the Center for Emerging Media, made possible in part by a grant from the Town Creek Foundation. Our producers are Mark Gunnery and Stephanie Mavronis. Our engineer at WEAA is Andre Melton. Our engineer at Delmarva Public Radio is Christopher Rank. To hear this show again, podcast any of our past shows, and find out information from the interviews we are doing on this program, please visit us on the web at steinershow.org. You can also listen to and download our podcasts on iTunes. For Public Radio, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. And for WSDL 90.7 FM, Delmarva Public Radio, I'm Mark Steiner. Take care.